0: Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and for today's episode I'm joined across the Dispatch Box by none other than Zach Green. It's been a while since we last spoke. Zach and I have both been ridiculously busy with kind of university deadlines and whatnot, but we are delighted to be back for today's episode. Before we proceed, I should say this is going to be a shorter episode, but aiming for around half an hour and we're just going to talk about whatever springs to mind. I should also add, at the time of recording, it's currently three minutes past six on the 23rd of March, 2021. So, with the preamble out of the way, I'll hand it over to you, Zach. What has caught your attention over the past seven days?
1: Well, the thing that's caught my attention, if anything, in the last 24 hours has been the fall, then meteoric rise again of Nicola Sturgeon whose position looked really precarious a couple of days ago when uh, there was this big dispute over whether or not she'd breached the ministerial code and Hound's inquiry came back yesterday albeit with a lot of reductions but had found that Nicola Sturgeon hadn't breached the ministerial code and thus keeping her position as first minister completely safe and almost Neutralising the SNP's opposition, mainly the Scottish Tories, ahead of the May Holyrood elections.
0: The story up in Scotland was so so intense, wasn't it? And with kind of the report, Mm. Hamilton report that was released yesterday, it's it had all the hallmarks of a story that was going to potentially bring down kind of the SNP. And then I think it was polling released yesterday that suggested they're still on course to win. An overall majority in in the Scottish Parliament elections in May, which again is just so so close um, to happening now. The thing that caught my attention, um, of course, it's it's a year to the day since the first coronavirus lockdown was introduced, and it's had me thinking about just what an absolute shit show the past year has been. Um, even if even if we avoid all of the really serious topics, kind of about people losing their loved ones, if we just think about the past year that we've experienced. It's been atrocious, hasn't it? I just mm-hmm. it's just been so odd, and I'm really, really looking forward to kind of pushing on and 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 looking forward to the summer because hopefully the summer will be much better that's That's at least the hope in terms of a policy thing that's kind of caught my attention. I think um you would have seen in in some of the government uh, papers that have been released today about kind of how. There'll be an exemption in the travel ban for people who are travelling to their second home so that they can sell them or rent them out or whatever they can do to be at the second home. Um, Labour have dubbed this, I think it was Ashworth who dubbed it, uh, the, the Stanley Johnson clause. It's just such a ridiculous policy isn't it? I mean,
1: It's kind of true to form isn't it that um, it's the kind of one rule for them, one rule for the others and in a way It's something that the Tories have actually delicately avoided for months, that ever since the Dominic Cummings uh, saga and fiasco, we've kind of avoided in our politics the kind of the one rule for them, one rule for us, which is usually politically toxic for the Tory party historically. And it's got that kind of danger of potentially veering into that kind of optics again. It is a ridiculous rule. It's something that a lot of people won't be able to reconcile. It's not as if, the entire most of the country are second homeowners, and yes, it's completely balmy, isn't it? When when you when you pick apart the optics of it,
0: yeah, that's that's the problem for me. And I just look at it and I say, well, why is this this clause necessary? It's such a vanishingly small thing, and surely in some respects it's covered within the legislation anyway. Because if you were selling your house, that would kind of be a business transaction anyway, and of course you can travel for business purposes Um so it's just a really really weird situation for the government to be in i think that kind of encapsulates what's what's caught our attention recently what else has been on your mind though is that because it's been what i think just under three weeks since we last spoke
1: a lot a lot has happened, and uh, I think we said this before we came on air about um, there's going to be a by-election, I think, on the day of the local elections in Hartlepool, and this is going to be our first by-election since the 2019 general election. It's going to be a fascinating battle, and there's a lot of controversy with the selection of the Labour candidate. There's a lot to look forward to. This is um, the first, I think, it's the Northern Independence Party are making a real plump. Uh, for for the seat, which we know that it's very likely that they're not going to get it, but at the same time, this is a f- real big test for Keir Starmer. It's going to fall on the day of the local elections, and we anticipate Labour are going to have mixed results because of this um, the vaccine bounce, which Keir Starmer has already kind of alluded to as not an excuse as such, but more as tempering expectations. But we've got that on the Tory side, that they think that. they're they're heading for losses. They've got to be cautiously optimistic. It's got all the flavouring of seeing where the Labour Party are under Keir Starmer. And when this by-election in Hartlepool happens, we're going to see what is Starmer's Labour Party standing in Hartlepool, which is a traditional working class seat. It's one of those seats which um, a lot of dispute over whether or not it's in the Red Wall or not. We won't go into that. It's definitely more of a case of can Labour hold it in a seat where the Brexit Party uh, ran Labour close. I think the Brexit party came in third. Richard Tice, who's going to be, I think, running in Hartlepool's reform. And it has all the recipes, I think, for a big political fallout once it happens. But that's in May. But apart from that, that's, I think, been the headline thing that's caught my attention over the past couple of weeks.
0: The by-election in, in Hartlepool is, is really important. I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting to judge as we get closer and closer to that election is basically what the appeal of the Reform Party is. I, of course, rebranded for, from the Brexit Party. I, I just don't really understand what they're going to bring to the table. Um, and I think hmm. in it a lot of people are expecting what happened in, in the last election, back in 2019, when Brexit Party won a considerable kind of share of the vote in, in that constituency. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that will actually bear out this time out because I just think we're in a totally different position. And I don't think... A party that is campaigning against lockdown or against kind of these kind of coronavirus measures has any chance of being electorally appealing in in May time if the coronavirus <laughs> vaccination scheme starts to kind of have the wheels fall off, then I think it will be different and I think there might be a section where kind of a reform party m p could kind of rise to power but other than that, it, it seems very unlikely. And I think that, that somewhat undermines kind of the idea that, that this is going to be a really hotly contested election. I'm not I'm not too sure what you'll make of that, Zach.
1: I think, yeah, that, this is um, it's quite unique, isn't it? We're going to have an electoral event that doesn't involve Brexit for the first time in what seems forever. And you have to remember, Labour lost, I think, 13 percentage points in 2019. The Tories were down five as well. And I think it's going to be the first Labour Tory where... A lot of people are beginning to think the Tories could gain Hartlepool, which would be, let's just have it out very clearly, this would be a disaster for Labour. It would be a disaster for Keir Starmer's leadership if they were to lose a seat like Hartlepool, which even Peter Mandelson held on to after a political scandal in 2001. So it's not as if losing Hartlepool happens every so often for Labour. It would just be another kind nail in the coffin of Labour's appeal to the working class and the and the North, which is an area which they have to rebuild at the next election. But as it's the first post-Brexit kind of vote, we just don't know what's going to happen. I know the candidate has to delete all of his pro-referendum um, tweets and yet more tweets about other things emerge. But that's going to have no currency, I think, in this election and in this electoral cycle that Brexit and Europe are definitely now consigned to the dustbin of history, we hope, or at least sidelines to the extent where we have a proper... National policy went on the NHS the economy, etc, which hasn't happened in the last few democratic events
0: definitely I, as I, such. I, I think as we get closer to the time, it will be really interesting to see who the who the runners and, and riders are in that election and and what they're standing for, and perhaps if there is a reform party candidate kind of what they're making a big noise about and um, what I'll say at this point is I think at the start of the podcast, until this point, you probably would have had some kind of uh, echo on when I was speaking. I'm not entirely sure why that was. I, I moved my phone around, and hopefully, it should be a little bit better now. If the audio, if the audio is still rubbish, I, I do apologise, but there's not an awful lot I could, I can really do with the software that we're using. One of the other stories um, that caught my attention, and I, I should add as, as well, we're kind of just. Taking a free here this episode we're just talking about whatever comes to mind is there was a am sure Zach would have seen this we've we 've not liaised about this before the episode uh, the clip from James Wilde who's the member of parliament for Northwest Norfolk, <laughs> who tweeted um, yesterday today uh, the commons p a c scrutinized the BBC on its strategy as well as asking about license fee commercial income and efficiency. I asked about and then the member of parliament has included a emoji of the British flag, and um. got any in its two hundred and sixty-eight page two hundred and sixty-eight page annual report. Maybe this year will. well. And if you watch the audio on this clip, it really is the most mind-boggling episode. It's unreal. I, I mean, if you haven't, Zach, have you seen the clip that I'm talking about?
1: It's it's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> because it's, it. it it's beyond kind of comprehension. Surely this isn't a serious cutting issue of the day, is it?
0: It's not even that. The thing that really gets me, the thing that I find really funny, and it's not funny because essentially the tax payer, and we are taxpayers, so we're kind of paying this guy's wages, is the fact that he was so pleased with himself. He looked like he'd kind of just delivered the best. gotcha. Of- yeah, and it was just like, and then of course the, the the person from the the BBC responded, well, I'm not really sure what kind of metric that is. And essentially, the question they asked was kind of how many British lags were included in this report. And <laughs> <laughs> the director general was like, "Well, I I don't know. That's not a metric I think about." And I just it's just utterly surreal. And the reason I mention this is not because I think this is a serious political <laughs> issue, because of course it isn't. But I and it just simply because it's been a while since I've spoken to Zach, I want to know what you think about kind of flag mania, because I feel uh, like flags have just taken over the world, whether it's James Wilde talking about the BBC and to to put a bow on, on the BBC issue, we're literally talking about an organisation called the British Broadcasting Company. Can it get any more British than have British in its name? It's just utterly ridiculous.
1: It, it, the discourse is... Ridiculous. And the director general is not exactly innocent here, is that he had a massive go at, um, I don't know if you saw that excerpt and the big con- controversy, I say that in inverted commas, with uh, Nagamachete and, Char- I can't remember his second name, Charlie something, on BBC Breakfast, where they were kind of mocking Robert Jenrick having abnormally large British flag, I think it was in his living room. And it's just this debate of having to prove how proud of Britain you are by having a flag I mean this again this is not a a Tory thing either it's Labour. in a way it started with Labour when Keir Starmer had that leaked memo that Labour had to have the flag on everything and it's kind of this obsession with trying to persuade the British public that each political party is proud of Britain now you can do that in many ways you don't have to use the flag and I just think it's we've kind of made this issue such a The now issue it doesn't matter in my opinion anyway i think there's far more and far uh, far more better and far more productive ways of showing how patriotic you are to your country rather than just having a massive flag in the background and i hate to disappoint our viewers i've not got a british flag in my room sadly so i don't know what the opinion is on on that i don't know if you have either
0: I unsurprisingly no, I don't have a British flag in my room, which must mean I hate our country. Um it's just utterly surreal, isn't it? And I think what we've seen with this discourse is just frankly ridiculous. And and you mentioned so the newsreader you was referring to was Charlie State. Uh oh. on that one. I, I'm just a BBC kind of breakfast nerd, really. Um but the, the the other weird flag scenario that we've had recently is um, Hugh Edwards, who of course is also a newsreader on, on the BBC oh, yes. he does uh, BBC News uh, at six and ten o'clock usually, who tweeted an image of him in front of a kind of a photoshopped image of him in front of the Welsh flag that was then he, he was asked to take down again it was referencing the same kind of flag gate we have on BBC uh, Breakfast and we're now in this surreal situation where people are kind of champion Hugh Edwards as, as some kind of legend of the Welsh independence movement with his flag and all sorts it's just honestly an utterly surreal experience and I would love to know and I mean I feel like if you are of the opinion that the flag is is of the utmost importance to be there in, in a BBC report and things like this then you are probably already switched off the podcast because we're not taking you <laughs> particularly seriously but if you have got this part I would absolutely love to know why on earth you care about this issue because I've just got I, I was talking to Zach about this before the show but I've got so many other things that are kind of on my mind that I can't imagine how good my life must be to be worried about whether the flag is flying I just find it utterly surreal and that's not uh, that's not kind of a reflection on anything I just I just don't really care that much so yeah, you know, it's it is a, a really weird discourse in our politics
1: it's a dangerous one as well, I think. That it, it starts off as this kind of harmless bantering about the flag. But it when you're looking at the response from the um BBC Breakfast controversy, all of the abuse was not targeted at Charlie Slate, who was actually making the comments. It was targeted it was targeted at someone else. And it's this discourse about proving but essentially it's people trying to prove how British they are by having the bigger flag. It that's how it starts off. is that kind of once again, that nationalistic kind of aggressive discourse it, that's inevitably going to happen. I think it, it, it's very likely it's going to happen during the local election campaign somehow, and it's it, it gets it becomes it starts off as farcical, then just turns into unpleasantness. And we have to hope that the BBC and other institutions kind of temper that flame rather than let it rip through our discourse because it, it could easily end up in a very dangerous place.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean that that that's the crux of it isn't it there is the way in which this issue is manifested is is hilarious but kind of the undertones that it, it kind of speaks to the populism and the nationalism that's kind of coming into our politics is obviously more serious and I think on that note it, it's really interesting because and and I will now shift this conversation towards a slightly more kind of serious policy issue is there was a report this weekend in in one of the kind of Murdoch newspapers about how Boris Johnson was planning to cut um, troop numbers by, I think, 10,000. And that was something that he pledged not to do in the general election campaign two years ago, well, 18 months ago, whenever it was. And that is odd because, and again, mm. we have, to have a weird mm. political situation. This post is saying one thing about kind of how patriotic we are about. people get drawn into kind of obsessing about flags and i think people are distracted when government ministers say absolutely ludicrous things about flag, because that that's just the bottom line isn't it really i mean there was another story it, it seems like i'm obsessed with flags i've just just found it quite funny where our local mp andrew Rosendow oh, claimed, yeah. claimed, claimed a huge victory because uh, kind of Council buildings around the country can now can now fly the flag all year round. Of course, they they, they do that anyway. There's just, there's just now some guidance that says kind of it, it might be good if if you wanted to do this. Um, mm. But this is the thing, and I think it speaks to a really weird situation in this country. And I think perhaps kind of the police and, and crime bill that I'm sure Zach will mention. At the moment, I think that's one of the things he wants to mention, where we have the situation with free speech, where People say, well, you can't say this because X, Y, Z, political correctness gone mad, all this kind of stuff. And then but you, you could say these things. And like the British flag, you could fly all year round if you wanted to. There's nothing stopping you. That's kind of the good thing about free speech. And all of this comes in the context of the government introducing the bill that would kind of, in, in the eyes of its critics, undermine the rights of people to protest in this country. So, Zach, I was going to hand off to you here gracefully and say, what did you think... Of the legislation that's that passing through the Commons at the moment,
1: it's it's a very large bill. That's the problem. That if the whole protest thing, the whole big issue, has fused since the uh, very tragic murder of Sarah Everard, where there was a vigil, and that obviously descended into as everyone has saw some really disturbing images of the police holding women down there's some scuffles there was kettling etc etc and this started fused off this kind of big debate over this bill that all of a sudden after months and months of Labour supporting this bill it, it should be said it's not as if the Labour have always been really opposed to this bill a subsection was found in that bill about this idea that the police could interrupt if there's basically if a process makes noise and that is very you look at it in the abstract it's quite disturbing that essentially any process it could be just me or you just going you know with a big banner and, and shouting something and that could be repressed that could you know we could face criminal sanctions for that and then it sparks off this big debate about the actual optics of the bill elsewhere so for example uh, again something labour supported this time last year that Uh, there's tougher sentencing for example for people who deface or try to destroy statues and the big argument there was well it's 10 years for um, defacing statues whereas the absolute minimum statutory uh, sentencing i believe for rape is um five year, or they were trying to argue it's that you know if you look at the legislation you're more likely to spend more time in prison for defacing statue than you are for rape and again as we said about the flags is that that kind of post politic of that kind of appealing to the populist crowd and um and those who haven't seen it yet i would implore some of the you to watch the David Lammy speech. I think it's ten minutes long. It it's completely cutting. He go he completely for hates use the word forensically skewers the bill that why people should vote against it. But yes, this bill is quite disturbing insofar as that it really does limit our kind of right to protest. It the sentencing is quite illiterate in my opinion. That the whole statute thing has kind of been born out of last year's kind of upsets and yet it's taking british politics into a really disturbing place and someone made this comment on twitter i think it's stuck out since that don't give power to uh, or something about basically don't give yourself power that you would not give your opponents and that's when it's looking like that the tories are going to be giving themselves a lot of power with this bill or giving the police a lot of powers that if we're going to be real are going to be quite hard to get back and again, it's that kind of slippery slope into more disturbing tropes in our society that could arise from this bill. Uh, I know it's been shelved until later in the year, which kind of suggests there'll be a climb down of some sort. Because, as we saw with um, "Kill the Bill" uh, protest in Bristol uh, that ended up in a bit of rioting, this will not be received well by the public.
0: No. That's the thing, and I'm currently looking at the Police, Crime, Sentencing, and Courts Bill policy paper, overarching fact sheet, which you can find on the government website. Uh, surprisingly, really easy to find. So they've done some cracking SEO on, on on this page because it came up first on Google when I when I, when I googled search uh, police bill. Um, so yeah, that, that's the extent of public interest in this is is ranking highly on Google. I know that's not a kind of typical metric of, of assessing a political policy and a political issue, but clearly it's, it's something that the public are interested in. Just at the top of the sheet is kind of what are we going to do? So this is from the government. It says, back our police by equipping officers with the powers and tools they need to keep themselves and all of us safe. Introduce tougher sentencing for the worst offenders and end automatic halfway release from prison for serious crimes. And finally, to improve the efficiency of the court and tribunal system by modernising existing court processes. Now, what I will say about this um, is that I'm in no means an expert on on these areas. I, I'm not someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the criminal justice system. It's just not something that has previously been the focus of my attention. I often on these matters defer to, to the Twitter account secret barrister because they tweet a lot of really interesting things that they kind of back mm. up from experience. And I just think the issue with this bill is it plays a lot of lip service to the idea that tougher sentences act as a as a, as the, as the deterrent, like, say, for example, if you, if you increase, this is the issue I have with the bill, essentially it's like the government is saying, look, so currently there are imagine the scenario where there's 20 murders a day. And they say, well, if we increase the punishment for murders by 50%, there'll be 50% less murders a day. And I just think it's just the, the most flawed logic. And I think that's how the government looks at this. They, they simple kind of, they make, These policy matters are incredibly simple and then kind of distort the actual meaning of of how you create meaningful change. And I think it's very easy to sell to the public to say, look, we're going to we're going to be tough on crime. That's a very easy message to sell because people like that. People like the idea of being hard on criminals. It's an easy political message to spin. What people don't like is the idea that you can do other things to prevent crime. That's a more needle to thread. And I just feel the conservative government. It's always the easy option. I honestly think this this police crime sentencing and courts bill will not have any meaningful impact because it's it's just not designed to do so. And I think the issue that you have as well is that following a year where the police have had so much more influence over people's lives where things that ordinarily would just be kind of part and parcel of everyday life have been criminalised. I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't have been criminalised. I'm saying that kind of the coronavirus has represented a huge change in how we think about civil liberties is simply that I feel like the timing of this was all wrong, especially Mm -hmm. in the context of kind of the past month, as you say, Zach, with the Sarah Reverend case, it's just absolutely ludicrous that that they've put this bill forward at this time. And I think I said this to you via direct message, I was really surprised that they didn't pull this bill kind of after the vigil that that turned violent once the police turned up. I was I was really astonished that they went ahead with the first reading of this or the second reading of this, because it feels unnecessary. And the thing is, if the government wants to do something at any point during its kind of tenure as the as the party in charge of this country, it has the numbers to do so. So there was no political necessity to do it right now because the majority isn't going anywhere. So for me, I think it's it's bad policy, it's bad politics and done in the most kind of incredibly inappropriate circumstances imaginable.
1: Absolutely. And as you talk about civil liberties, the way we think about them, that's why I think this whole kind of being tough on crime may, for, quite surprising, I think for the one of the first times in i can remember where it kind of gets muted out doesn't it by the fact that i think the public are getting increasingly frustrated with the powers the police have that like to the point where they feel like every activity they do all the way all the way their way of living has been criminalized to the point where some people would be resistant to the police having more or consistently more powers than usual and I think this is a can of worms that are going to be opened at some point later in the year where we will be relatively back to normal and there'll be Conservative MPs who stood on a platform not long ago, even in the last week or so, saying that free uh, our liberties were at stake if the government wanted to extend, for example, the coronavirus bill or that they want to keep, keep us with some sort of restrictions and social distancing guidelines, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera these words are going to come back to either bite them on the backside or bite the government on the backside, that there's now uh, an actual opposition to this bill. And I believe that the momentum of the opposition for this to this bill could inflict a government defeat just because of the wide ranging uh, powers and kind of subsections in this bill. Again, it's about optics and i thought it was quite surprising when late i think i said this to you at the time that labor said that the bill effectively decriminalized rape now that was a really shocking comment to make and it was like wow that's that's a strong comment again it's something probably people in the public can say but a, a political party especially the opposition couldn't say really and then very cleverly almost as if that labor waited for the rancor to die down so but we didn't say it was actually the government's own commissioner into uh, into crime uh, domestic violence and crime that said this that you know because the the fact that sentencing and also prosecution in rape cases are so low that effectively under this government's watch rape is de- being decriminalized so, again, we're heading into that dangerous territory where you've got the Tories going to be accusing Labour of being soft on crime and Labour accusing the Tories of decriminalising rape. And where does that leave us later in the year? Potentially with riots, potentially with unrest and a very populist kind of tone between our two major parties. And that's and I think we, we alluded to this with the flag talk that it's it's veering into very unpleasant territory. Definitely.
0: And I think the other thing to bear in mind as well is the scenes that we saw in Bristol at the weekend, which, of course, uh, Pretty Patel tweeted about and has since been comprehensively memed. I th- I, this is the political environment that, that legislation like this breeds because when the public, when at least a section of the public, feels like they're being targeted by the government with a really aggressive policy, they're going to respond aggressively. And I think you end up in a situation where neither the public nor the police are serviced by this. And I think what we saw in Bristol at the weekend was horrific. By all means, protest legislation and protest was happening in this country. But there's a line at kind of trying to to set police cars on, on fire and things like that. So this is the problem that I have with lots of, of protest movements is I'm not of the opinion that, that direct action works. I think mm. when you do things like that, it undermines the cause that you believe in. And I'm someone who does not in any sense of the word want this piece of legislation to go through. I think it's a bad idea and I don't think it will work. I don't think it will have the desired impact. However, you look at what kind of happened in Bristol at the weekend and I imagine swing voters, people in the Red Wall will look at this and say, "Okay, are we going to back the people who want the the police to have more power or the people who need this legislation? And my guess would be to say that they'll probably back the people who want the police to have more power because it's an easier political message to sell. And that's the way the discourse is headed.
1: Absolutely. It it alludes to a lot of national issues over the next few months in kind of in the dust trail of the May local elections that there's going to be a lot of difficult political messages to get out there so for example when we've got the spending review in the autumn that Rishi Sunak may have to be a bit more honest with the public that they will have to pay a lot more and the kind of the favourability towards certain policies will begin to sour because the kind of the true cost is going to be Having, having to be conveyed out there and that's not just that's not the gov- in just in the government's in trade that's going to be in Labour's in trade for example as well where they're going to have to formulate a policy base where there's going to be some really difficult decisions for Keir Starmer to make that he can't keep kicking the can down the road and Labour need an angle on certain things so that's where I think the direction of travel is that it's bills like this that kind of represent a, a larger long-term problem for both political parties that the message the the easy message is not the best message however given both parties political positions for example you've got the Tories with a very comfortable majority however it doesn't take much for them to lose it we're against Labour who need basically let's be frank any vote they can get they're both going to be in this race to the bottom to get the easiest message out there no matter what the consequences are and that's a really dangerous place to be in because it kind of distorts and kind of dilutes the quality of politics on show so in the months ahead i think once this bill returns once certain other issues return you're going to see this ramping up of awful awful inaccurate and populist messages
0: yeah what i would say kind of heading towards the end of the show as as i said at the start we're going to keep this one brief there's, there's so many different stories circulating at the minute. I think one of the important things looking forward is whether or not we stay on track with the coronavirus roadmap as the Prime Minister termed it. We actually had a question in um, from James Palmer, who uh, is well, previously the editor of the Boar film, also just one of my close friends. So hello, James, if you're listening to the podcast. And sorry that I forgot about your question until the very end of the show. Um, James essentially asked um, about the astrazeneca situation in europe so the question about the vaccine and why it has been so heavily criticised over the past few weeks So i'm assuming this is with reference to astrazeneca and some of the things that ursula von der leyen has been saying about it. that quickly if you will what has what is the story here what's been going on with the
1: vaccine i've called it vaccine wars so essentially uh France, and Ge- It all started last week. France and Germany essentially banned the distribution of the AstraZeneca vaccine in their own respective countries. This was followed by loads more on the premise that it had caused blood clots. Now, the context here is that in around 16 million dosages, you had about 37 blood clots. Basically, a contraceptive bill has more likelihood of giving you blood clots than the AstraZeneca jab. Uh, the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, basically said that this vaccine is very safe you shouldn't be lifting the you shouldn't be restricting its distribution in your own countries this is accepted only for the European Union now to threaten this export ban that ingredients of the AstraZeneca vaccine can't come into this country which would uh, essentially what a load of people are saying that the European Union are stealing our jabs again we won't buy into that kind of narrative and at the same time a lot of people are alleging that it would delay the UK's kind of exit from lockdown as we are relying on the AstraZeneca vaccine a lot more than the others. Uh, that's essentially the long and short of it, that it's vaccine wars. It's the UK against the European Union all over again, which is part of this post-Brexit relationship. This is a
0: story that just doesn't surprise me in the slightest. So essentially the situation is that the UK got a certain number of vaccines from AstraZeneca the European Union was slow to the punch and kind of got there afterwards. And there's this big dispute about whether or not vaccines that are made in the European Union should be shipped to the United Kingdom if, Af- if AstraZeneca are not fulfilling their contractual obligations to the EU. There's a huge debate about what this legally means, and it's not something I'm particularly interested in, so I won't go there. But essentially, that's the problem. And you also, as Zach mentioned, you had the situation last week where lots and lots of governments around the world, this wasn't just in Europe, there was a couple in South America and Southeast Asia as well, stopped using the AstraZeneca vaccine because of these backlogs. And what we've seen since then is a huge kind of surge in distrust of the vaccine. And it's not happened in the UK. It happened to a very small extent. I think now it's 77% of the British public believe that the vaccine is safe, which when you compare to, I think, Spain is at 50% believe it's safe so there's huge variations in this around the world and essentially the issue that we have and the reason why it's become so politicized is because access is scarce and people are fighting to get what they can i think the reason why we're seeing these taxes from the european union and the reason why i'm not surprised in the slightest is that this is what the european union does and what the british public and what the british media hasn't really clocked onto is that the eu rather the the united kingdom would have been party to this behavior had we not left the european union the eu often uses its power in this kind of way to try and exert advantages and try and get the best for its member states so we should not be surprised as a third as a third country that the eu is prioritizing itself over the united kingdom and i think if and i think james o'brien tweeted this the other day if in an alternative world the vaccine distribution was going brilliantly in europe but not in the United Kingdom. And there was a Welsh factory that was exporting vaccines to the EU. You would bet your bottom dollar that British politicians would be saying exactly the same as European politicians are saying right now. So I think there's a whole lot of double standards about this. And I don't think it's going to finish any time soon because this is, of course, the political issue that is going to define the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, there's nothing more for me really to add there apart from that. that's why I think we call it vaccine wars. It's that kind of prelude to one of many disputes in disputes between the United Kingdom and the European Union for sure. Not just in this year, but the next couple.
0: I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Countries and countries just don't get along. Countries have conflicting interests, and and they'll do whatever they can to secure what's right for them. It's it's not something that we should be surprised by. And again. The Vote Leave campaign and Leave.eu were talking about how we're going to be global Britain, how we're going to kind of conquer the world again, how we're going to get out there and be competitive. And well, unfortunately, part of being in competition is that other people are going to try and beat you. And I think that's essentially what we're experiencing now. We could do a whole podcast on why the vaccine rollout is going so poorly in Europe. I suggest that we probably shouldn't do that right now. But what I'll ask you is that. Before we end the show, is there anything else you want to mention briefly? So, kind of like the opposite of what's caught your attention over the past seven days.
1: Uh, okay, if we spin it like this, is there anything to look out for um, in the next couple of weeks before we return uh, the extension of the coronavirus act? I think it's either this week or next week. And look out for how the discourse might change now. The deaths are entering double figures rather than triple figures, because I think that'd be really interesting to. See the direction of travel in the Tory Party, at least, anyway.
0: In terms of the thing that I am looking out for, this is a really good idea for a segment. I don't know why we've never thought of this before. And um, the thing that I'm looking out for, <laughs> kind of a couple of weeks ahead, is what happens in America with regards to gun regulation. Because, of course, what happened at the weekend in Colorado with a mass shooting—I think it's the, kind of the second one in, in a in a small number of days—is again obviously horrific and and just dreadful to see but i think going forwards what's going to be really interesting is how u.s policymakers address this question so there was already a clip circulating today from a senator uh from from the republican party talking about how well you can't take our guns because kind of you don't take our cars when they're a drunk driver so why would you take the guns away that kind of idea it's just complete ridiculous um and i think that's going to be a political issue that is going to be something that both president biden and vice president harris need to kind of get on top of i think that's definitely something to look out for in terms of kind of american politics as a whole it's not something we've mentioned today but it was really big that the democrats were able to pass the coronavirus relief bill um that's a huge amount of money will have a tremendous impact on on people in in the united states and wasn't passed with any republican votes and in all honesty i think that's probably. Politically, a good thing for the Democrats because A, they didn't have to water down the bill, and B, kind of, it says, We did this without the Republicans, you should vote for us again because this is the kind of stuff we stand for. I think that's probably just about it so that brings the episode to a close at just about i think 40 ish minutes thank you so much for joining us today for this episode i should say before we go we're probably going to be aiming for a fortnightly podcast from here on in um just because zach and i are so so busy with with deadlines coming up so we hope you understand that once we get to the summer i've got lots of really exciting things planned so hopefully i can kind of ramp up the social media we'll ramp up the podcast again and hopefully It will be a a bright new chapter of midfield politics. But for now, we're kind of running as we are. Um, Zach, as always, thanks so much for joining me for today's episode.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening.
0: And that is the end of the show. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Luke James 32. Zach, you're probably following him already, but you can follow him at <laughs> V2. If you'd like to follow, follow the podcast account for when I finally start to post content again, you can follow that at Politic. And that really is the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, stay safe. Keep voting.